You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's episode, I sit down with Seamus Scaring and Carlos Pelias from NASDAQ to talk about surge in retail demand and financial markets what ETFs are, and why we've seen an increased interest in them, the benefits of utilizing options in your portfolio, what market benchmarks investors are using to judge their portfolio's performance, whether the surge in retail demand is here to stay or not, and much, much more. Seamus is a senior index options analyst with NASDAQ. He's focused on building and managing NASDAQ's index options product suite, including NASDAQ 100 index options. Carlos is a senior manager of ETF listings at NASDAQ as well. Carlos primarily works with asset managers to help them navigate the ETF listings process and life cycle. Seamus and Carlos sit right in the front row to watch what is happening in the retail market today. So I think you'll find a ton of value from their insights. All right, now without further delay, let's dive right into this week's episode with Seamus Gehring and Carlos Pelias. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's show, I'm joined by Seamus Scaring and Carlos Pelias. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you for having us, Clay. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Before we dive into today's episode, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your backgrounds. Yeah, so I'll start us off and then I'll kick it over. My name is Seamus Gehring. I work at NASDAQ within the Capital Markets Group focusing on options. I graduated from Boston College in 2018 and have been at NASDAQ for three years now. So my role as a senior analyst, I focus on sort of building and managing our index derivative product suite, something that we've really looked to grow the last few years and continue to sort of build around our new audiences. So within that role, I kind of lead our retail and advisor businesses with customer research, managing partner relations, and then using the analytics that we have access to, to bring new products to market. And definitely excited to be here. Carlos and I are both listeners and also avid investors on our own time. So excited to get into some of these and I'll pass it over to Carlos. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having us, Clay. So I'm Carlos Pelias. I work on the ETF listings team here at NASDAQ. So what, what that covers is we work with asset managers to list these ETFs or their ETFs on our, on our exchange, as well as working with trading firms to quote and provide liquidity on the exchange. So some, some background from me is I, I graduated from Franklin and Marshall seven years ago, Franklin Marshall College, started as an intern and then moved into a couple of different roles here at NASDAQ, spanning trading operations product management and different projects like that. But I've always kind of had a passion, as, as Seamus mentioned, for the markets. I grew up with my dad as, as a trader and kind of got to experience the personal finance journey after having my own paycheck and kind of working out both successes and failures of how to manage my money, how to invest my money, how to work in the markets and, and leverage some of the kind of unbelievable opportunities that the retail investor has at their fingertips now. So really excited and pumped for the conversation today. Yeah, like you mentioned, it is really exciting that there's just so much information out there for us to learn from and tools for us as retail investors to utilize. And we're going to dig into all that in today's episode. As the theme of the episode is the democratization of investment products. To get us kicked off, let's talk about the retail investor. The past couple of years, we have seen a surge in retail investors gaining access to the financial markets. Can you tell our audience what has led to the surge in retail demand? Really, since 2019, we've seen this unprecedented interest on the part of 
what we like to call main street investors within options, ETF, and really across all markets. This new age of retail investors, everyone really can agree that it's an important and integral part of our market ecosystem right now and hopefully going forward. So really what we like to think of this as a result of is multiple factors. The first is zero commission trading. That was obviously a big step in accessibility and allowing new audiences. Various, the free and accessible trading apps that we all see and hear about are also really important just in terms of getting it in the hands of users and allowing them to to test out these products in these markets. And then I think a big thing was also the events of 2020. So the quarantine mandates, people having a lot of time on their hands to both educate themselves, spend more time following the markets and what was going on and looking for secondary income. So whether that be generating income on the markets or just looking to somehow diversify and build off their current portfolio. I know I was the same way. I was sitting at home and, and I was trading a lot just because there was tons of news coming out and you're kind of bored at home and looking to do something. So it was an exciting time. And I think you look at all of these new entrants and what happened to be an extremely unique realized volatility landscape of 2020. And it just combined to see the growth that we're seeing now. So really our role as both an exchange and as an industry is to make sure that this 2020-2021 growth isn't just a quick little flash. It's actually here to stay for the next 50, 70 years. I was going to say, just to touch on some of the boom that we've seen, I think it also goes to being on the ETF side, seeing the products that are coming to market and kind of different solutions that are available to retail investors and that are targeted at retail investors to help them achieve their outcomes. So as Seamus put it, I think you combine zero commissions with the products that are out there that are attractive for an investor, along with kind of the usability and easy access of having your phone out and being able to go and trade, um, whether you're sitting at your desk or going for a walk around the city, whatever it is, it's at your fingertips. And I think that's a, a key part of kind of this boom in retail trading, particularly amongst like the millennial and Gen Z type of investor who are on our phones and, and are always kind of looking at information constantly. So. I think that's a big part of that boom. And I think it's an exciting kind of newer entrant into the market space. All of that makes sense to me with the quarantine mandates and a lot of people working from home. Other items that come to mind is that with being stuck at home, many people also naturally saved a bit more money since they couldn't go out and do fun things they used to do. And on top of that, many people in the US received a stimulus check. So that added some potential liquidity into the market as well. It seems like retail investors just had more time on their hands and the extra cash to invest as well. You don't want to say necessarily that this came from the stimulus checks, but it's definitely not a coincidence that there was more cash coming in and more accessible cash at that point, especially young investors like all of ourselves. So there were various reasons and I think it all contributed to the whole. So what education tools are these retail investors using? I think overall in the retail space, we've seen kind of like the traditional outlets of education information, whether it be from the retail brokerage education centers or the financial advisor. But I think particularly with like the younger millennial side of things, we've seen a tendency to start kind of using more of the YouTubes, the Twitter, Reddit, and podcasts like this to get that information. I think personally, it's pretty fascinating because it's kind of a little bit more of like an open source market research approach using this wonderful information age that we're in, all the information and data that we have um, so accessible through the internet and kind of being able to use that to make decisions for the market. I think we've seen that both for the good and bad. And I think there's a lot of lessons learned during the past 18, 20 months of the pandemic in terms of trading that for the retail investor. So there's a long way to go. And I think companies like StockTwits and Common Stock are helping bridge that gap of wrapping up that social media or informational outlet information and being able to package it with a retail broker connection or feature set to kind of make sure you're following you know, or seeing valid information and things that are going to be pertinent to a trading decision that you might want to make. So I think looking at like the the newer investor, taking kind of the non-traditional sources probably provided some sort of, whether you want to call it alpha or, or advantage on what you could get previously. I agree. I mean, it's definitely exciting just the amount of education that we have out there. And it's something that 
if you're not utilizing it, you're kind of putting yourself at a standstill and you're inhibiting your potential growth because it's so easily accessible. And a lot of times it's overly accessible to the point where it's in your face. It's commercials, it's emails that you're getting all the time in the morning, things like that, where it you actively have to try to avoid this stuff. So I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, we live in a world where we really have a plethora of information. Like Carlos mentioned, you got YouTube, Twitter, Reddit, podcasts. I mean, there's no shortage of it, that's for sure. So how is your team playing a role in this shift as far as providing financial products and education tools to these investors? Yeah, I would say one cool thing about our role in terms of the fact that we work on a product creation side while also being that end user, it's interesting to kind of step back and think, what do I want? I'm trying to build something for a century myself. What do I want there? And I think the biggest things for me as an investor are flexibility and accessibility. If we're being honest, I am not at a point where I have the same risk appetite as someone who is 10, 15 years down the road and a lot more experience in the markets. And there are some things that, whether it be from a knowledge standpoint or from a capital standpoint, are out of my limits. So it's about just offering things that fit each audience. So what we saw is that while there's a surge in investor interest in the options market, there really wasn't a strong correlation to the supply of products coming in for this demographic. Things like various expirations or different contract sizes that range from really bite size and mini up to sort of that institutional size, and then just settlements across different time periods. So I definitely started trading options a lot. And for me, it was about finding the right pieces that fit because a lot of that comes down to timing. If you're hedging your portfolio, you want to sort of plan around certain events, plan around changes that you have upcoming. So different AM and PM settlements throughout the week, expiration days, those are all really helpful. So those are kind of things that we were able to step back and incorporate into what we're doing in ASAC and and hopefully just keep building on that pipeline. And to add on to that, you know, Nasdaq has been building a smart investing platform, which is kind of being used as a tool for or like an education center for investors. So um, going back to the points I made, there's so much information on the internet. Not all of us get to like me sit next to Seamus and learn about how to trade options. If you can use those types of platforms that are so accessible and and the idea is to build that easily digestible content so anyone can learn, whether it's a 101, 201, or even more advanced trading techniques. I think that's something that NASDAQ's putting a big focus on. And then from the ETF specific side, we want to make sure people understand what an ETF is and kind of like remove the curtain behind any questions people will have, whether it's trading or the trends it's following or things like that. So we work with our issuers constantly to produce content that can kind of be used as those educational sources for a retail trader or really anyone, even institutional. I think that's the beauty of ETFs is they're used by multiple parts of the market and different participants. So it's definitely been a focus of us. And we want to make sure our NASDAQ as a whole is providing that type of information and resources. Carlos, you work in the ETF division for NASDAQ. ETFs or exchange-traded funds are an investment vehicle that has gained more popularity recently. Could you give our audience an overview of what an ETF is exactly and why we've seen the increased interest? An ETF is, is essentially a wrapper or, or a technology. It's kind of what I think was like one of the original tools of democratizing uh, investing as a whole to kind of the entire investable world. So an ETF essentially is a basket of security that you can trade like a share or you can trade as a share like a stock on any exchange. So some of the use cases of an ETF are like getting passive broad market exposure to the S&P 500 or building out your portfolio your 60-40 portfolio using ETFs that cover all those different kind of mechanics of what you need to build that, going to portfolio diversification, or even gaining access to maybe an asset class that as a retail investor, you might not be able to like trading oil futures or something of that sort. So it kind of wraps all of these unbelievable investment strategies into one. And I think that's kind of the unique aspect of an ETF. It kind of is using the feature set of trading like a stock, but providing so much more than that. And if you look at the history of ETFs, they kind of started in the early 90s as that passive index investing vehicle. 
And now you look at some of the recent launches, there's active strategies and Bitcoin future strategies that are being launched. So the industry has come a really long way, particularly in the US, but also globally. I think a lot of that is to the increasing demand that we're seeing from retail traders, from institutions across the board, trying to take advantage of the benefits that ETFs can provide an investor and an investor's portfolio or their long-term or short-term trading strategies. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Are there any other benefits that ETFs provide outside of the broad market exposure, like you mentioned? Outside of kind of that like broad market exposure, I think the use case of getting access to an asset class that you may not be able to do it, be able to access as a regular investor. So I think like when you think about commodities, you don't have access or most people from a retail perspective do not have the access to trade futures on commodities or things like that. So in ETF, you can go and buy a gold or oil ETF that's going to give you that exposure for your portfolio, which could be a really important piece of your personal finance journey. And kind of depending on how you build out your portfolio is, I think, a huge benefit. So you can go to your retail brokerage, buy that ETF, and you have that exposure in the market. Some of the other benefits that I think are pretty interesting to an investor are the intraday liquidity side of things. So like if you were to invest in a mutual fund, you would be kind of trading once a day. You don't have the ability to trade out of it during the day as the market's moving. So an ETF, you can trade similar, obviously like a stock and, and kind of take advantage of market movements that are happening in that day rather than one period of time, like a mutual fund. And then there's this whole kind of tax efficiency and lower expense ratios that ETFs provide from a cost perspective to the investor. So they're an extremely tax efficient vehicle. And because of that, the issuing firms are able to reduce the management or expense ratio, which is essentially what you're paying to the ETF issuer as kind of a fund fee. So the lower those are, the better experience for an investor, the more of your money that's going into the market rather than going to fees. And I think that compared to some of the other fund competitors, that's a huge part of, of why they've been so successful is, and kind of like any technology generally comes in and disrupts cost and, and kind of changes that part of the ecosystem. So 
I think those are some of the other benefits that that ETF can kind of provide relative to the other products out there. Yeah, I think the cost piece that you mentioned is really important. You know, some of these funds have costs that are very close to zero percent, and when comparing that to some, say, mutual funds that have, say, a fee of one percent or more, that really compounds and adds up over time. Now, I'm curious. What are the various types of ETFs you've seen investors have the most interest in? Like, what types of assets are included in these ETFs? ETFs, as I mentioned, cover multiple asset classes. So it could be your regular U.S. equities. It could be commodities, futures that that cover those commodities. Tons of fixed income, and there's been a big boom in fixed income ETFs as well. More recently, we had a Bitcoin futures launch on Nasdaq. So that's kind of a newer asset class that's come to market from the US equity space and what investors can trade on from an ETF wrapper perspective that I think is pretty unique. And I think the other kind of piece of that is like even outside of the asset classes, there's this whole idea of kind of trend following and thematics that ETFs are also able to provide exposure to. So if you're interested in ESG or clean water and energy, those types of things, you can go, there's hundreds of ETFs that are covering these types of investment trends. And I think that's really important. There's biotech, which we saw a huge boom with. A lot of those firms were doing the like key and critical research to kind of the pandemic during the pandemic and and around COVID. So stuff like that, as well as ETFs using options, which which Seamus works on, along with kind of blockchain, crypto, and and as I mentioned, Bitcoin futures. So if like you're interested in following a certain investment trend but don't want to be a stock picker, there's the beauty of like an ETF can do it for you, and and that's why it's so kind of such like a novel technology or wrapper for the investment world. Yeah. For me personally, I think it's pretty cool if there's like an emerging industry that I'm interested in and I don't want to have to try and pick the winners. I can just buy an ETF. I find that very valuable myself. Yes. I often learn about companies in those segments, like whether it's autonomous driving or the green energy sector because the ETF is holding them. And you can kind of research from those firms about why they're bullish on that company and why they're bullish on this trend as a whole. So you can definitely follow really successfully kind of overall investment trends that will probably shape the market. You look at different things like fintech years ago and and where that market is now and how it's really taking up a lot of market share across banks and other technology companies. So it's a great way to get that access. And if you want to kind of skate to the puck, even though I hate using that for analogy or metaphor, ETFs can provide that kind of access to a newer trend, which is great. Just to add to that, from my personal perspective, ETFs are a great tool. Kind of like you said, Clay, I am extremely diversified across a lot of different areas. And it allows me to do that into sectors that I don't necessarily have a totally strong knowledge base on, but I'm allowed to be diversified into that because of these ETFs, whereas Really, if you ask me to talk about it for 10 minutes, I probably couldn't, but we'll take it. I love it. So Carlos, would you be able to tell us what structures are currently being utilized by newly listed ETFs? So from the structure side, I guess from like the newer trends in the space, what we've seen is newly approved structure by the SEC called semi-transparent ETFs. So one of the actual benefits that I didn't touch on of ETFs is they provide daily transparency into the portfolio which is really helpful for investors, but also market makers and trading firms who are providing arbitrage services to the fund to make sure that it's trading in line with its price. Um, so these semi-transparent ETFs and why this is kind of like a newer and kind of what I think is an interesting part of the ecosystem is they allow some sort of shielding or kind of proxy portfolio model on top of the regular transparency that an ETF would have to provide. And this is essentially helping cover the secret sauce a portfolio manager might have that they don't want to bring into the transparent ETF structure. So we're seeing a lot of active managers and active portfolio managers come to market launching these types of ETFs from like a new structure perspective. And I think we'll see more mutual funds converting and things like that, but we can get into some of that later. Interesting. So shifting gears a little bit, Seamus, we've also seen a rise in the demand for options. Could you give our audience a brief history of how the options market has evolved and what types of products exist for investors? It's actually kind of funny that in the eyes of many investors, the options market is sort of this new, mysterious thing. And I had that same mindset. I mean, I was an investor in high school and college, and I considered myself someone who 
was pretty adequate in terms of market knowledge. And I kind of had always stayed away from options and didn't really know much of it. And so it was funny getting thrown into it for the first time and seeing that it's really not what the reputation is. So in reality, it's not really that new. It's been around for a long time, but it just gained a ton of traction and public visibility in the last 25 years. I mean, just looking back, I'd written this down, but so 25 years ago, the options volume industry-wide for the year was around 175 million contracts, whereas gradually that number has grown to being over 75 billion contracts just last year. So it's not like it was just one quick jump. It's really just grown as an industry, whether it be confidence, education, visibility, et cetera. So I think really the key to continue that trend is, is to just debunk a lot of these myths that surround options and just provide more transparency into the benefits and use cases. So really, it's technology and education that go hand in hand there. So in this age of technology, which we've kind of talked about, there is just so much information that investors have and so much of an ability to learn at just the click of a button. So whether it be something as in-depth and sophisticated as a deep white paper or as minor as one quick tweet, there's just so many ways for you to learn just 1% better in terms of market visibility. So the platforms that we've, we've seen this really in the last couple of years is the investor platforms themselves have bought into this education movement because they want their investor base to be more sophisticated. It benefits them, it benefits the market, and most importantly, it benefits their clients. So I think that's something that's really helped. And the goal is just to continually break down these barriers of entry. So definitely something to look forward to. You mentioned breaking down the myths around the options market. I'm curious, what are some of those myths? The myths really are just the risk around it and the fact that it's a super complex portfolio management product. And really, when it comes down to it, there are ways that options can be used in a super complex and complicated way. But there are also ways that it can be used in in an extremely straightforward and simple manner. And both work equally. So that's kind of the biggest thing. And then in terms of risk, there's also obviously extremely risky strategies as there is with any other investment tool. And then there are less risky, more welcoming, if you want to say, strategies. So I think when it comes down to it, it is just like all other investment vehicles. And that's kind of how we want to view it. To add on to that a little bit, I think something that the options markets benefited similar to the equities market is it's kind of never been a better time to be a retail investor. You have that access to your brokerage account on your phone. You have a lot of those types of apps that are teaching you what your option is actually doing or your option strategy. So I think things like that, and then you pair with options being used across the portfolio management universe for years and being accessible in ETFs or other types of fund structures. Like there's just more, I think, that are that's benefiting the investor and people are starting to realize the one easy access and then the actual use case of of why it's so uh, important in a portfolio. Yeah, I, I totally agree there, Carlos. And I think unfortunately, when it was my time to learn options, the best way to do it was really just to get in the market and actually trade. And so I definitely had a couple losses there. We'll take them as as learning losses, but now there are tons of tools out there where you don't actually have to risk your money. There's essentially pretend portfolios or tools that you can practice and learn how these work. And then eventually you can implement real life strategies and put your money. But that was really the best way, not only with options, but just with anything that I trade right now. You can learn about it as much as you would like, but really firsthand knowledge is, at least for me, that was how I became the most comfortable. Now, the most basic way, in my opinion, for an investor to get started in the market is to just simply dollar cost average into a broad-based market ETF. Why might a retail investor be interested in utilizing options rather than taking just the basic broad-based ETFs approach? I would say all products have their pros and their cons. And from really the purest functionality, options are for yield enhancement, downside protection, etc. And so whether they're used for stock positioning, broad-based portfolio management, etc., they're just tools that 
Really, I think one of the biggest opportunities is that they are less capital intensive in comparison to the returns they can provide. Sort of as I mentioned before, this doesn't apply to all of it, but what I specifically use it for and why I got so into it, especially during the last two years, is because you can see the return without necessarily needing as much upfront capital. And so with that approach, there is more risk. But my personal situation at the time was that I was open to increasing my risk appetite in order to increase my return possibility. So for me, it fit perfectly. Whereas like I didn't have large amounts of upfront cash to dump into a certain name and hopefully see that grow. Whereas if you take a riskier strategy using options, for me at least, there was some upside there. And I think that for retail, one of the most attractive parts of it is that it is less capital intensive, especially for sort of new investors that are easing their way into the market. But at the same time, you have to understand that when there's less capital and higher upside, there's always going to be more risk there. So it's really just how you use it. The interesting thing I find about options is just like you've kind of alluded to, is just the flexibility. You know, you can use something like a put option while you own the underlying stock to kind of hedge your downside. And that inherently isn't a very risky strategy. It's kind of like buying insurance. The flip side of it is saying where you can buy a call option, a naked call option, and give yourself so much more upside than just owning the stock. But like you mentioned, that's a lot riskier strategy than just owning the stock because there is a possibility that you could lose 100% of your capital when the option expires. Do you have a feel of what sort of behaviors you're seeing from the market regarding how retail investors are approaching options trading? It's hard to necessarily tie exactly who is trading what strategies. But what we've seen in terms of growth is sort of like you're saying, those more simplistic strategies, whether they're just a simple call, a simple put, a spread, just to mitigate some costs there. And it's pretty straightforward use cases, like you're saying. If you're looking to hedge, there's no simpler way than buying a put. Or there are simple strategies for income generation. If you want to increase your gain on an expected move, you can use options to continually generate income on that move. So I think you touched on it pretty well. We like to think that some of these new strategies coming in are retail. We can't necessarily tie it down, but definitely. That's what in conversations I've had, whether it be with clients or with friends or relatives that are investing, that's really where everyone starts. And to add maybe just like an ETF lens on that. So one of the interesting points you brought up there, Clay, was like a downside protection or a hedge using an options while owning the underlying stock or index or something of that sort. So there's ETFs that do that for you too, which I think is like taking that idea of like complex portfolio management or what might seem like complex portfolio management or things that we might not do as your kind of everyday retail trader and providing that in the ETF form. So it's a little bit easier and you're kind of handing over a lot of that risk to the issuer and the firm that's managing that portfolio and the options and stocks or indexes in it. So I think like from the retail perspective, there's so many ways to use options now, whether you want to outsource it into an ETF or do it yourself and trade you know, a smaller version of the NASDAQ 100 in terms of products. So I think those are all different use cases for retail traders now and, and options that have, have been pretty interesting to me. And I think it's important to remember that while here we're kind of discussing the more interesting and fun ways to use options, when it comes down to it, the largest use case is hedging by far, far and away. So what options are used the most for is to hedge a portfolio. So you have your underlying assets, and then you use it as a hedge. There are obviously tons of use cases. And I would say, like what I was talking about before, I use it less for that, but everyone kind of has their own thing. And if you have a large equity-based or various asset class-based portfolio, options are a great tool to hedge that and will always be sort of a great tool for that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. 
I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Now let's talk about benchmarks. Historically, investors have used one of the major indexes, such as the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average, to judge how their portfolio has performed relative to the average. Tell our audience how these benchmarks have evolved over the years. What indexes are investors using to judge the performance of their portfolio? I think there's been a pretty good and transparent transition between which index dominates the time period. And you look at the Dow Jones as an important benchmark, and then the S&P. And really what I look at now and what I hear a lot about now is the NASDAQ 100 really becoming and leading that charge. It, it's emerged as sort of the leading market growth index. And I think obviously that comes from the fact that the most innovative companies, which, which most portfolios are now heavily tied to, whether that be your FANGs, your technology, your healthcare companies, those are the leading, as we like to call modern day industrial companies that will push the NASDAQ 100. And for me, that is an index that I benchmark to. But it's not necessarily because of those names. I think something really cool is that if you look at it, actually, the bottom 50 of the NASDAQ 100 outperformed the top 50 last year. So it's weird to think about that you obviously see the outstanding performance of names that are in the NASDAQ 100, those big tech names. But those smaller ones are what really contributes to making it not just this tech-heavy growth index, but really a well-rounded benchmark. But I think from an indexing side, it's exciting for our generation of investors because there are just a ton of wealth and a ton of indexes out there that have really risen over the last five to 10 years across various asset classes and sectors that allow for sort of the key when it comes to investing is customization. What I'm always looking for is how can I build, whether it be a hedge, if I'm looking for a hedge and I'm trying to calculate what I want to use. A lot of times indexes are where I'll go for that. And it's just about how can I build something that correlates best to my portfolio. And so because there are a wealth of these indexes out there, and whether it be direct index affiliation or an ETF, things like that, you can get to a really, really high correlation on your hedge and you really don't have a lot of exterior risk versus in the past, you would have to just benchmark to one and 
hope that you were correlated well there. So it just gives investors more power and accessibility in my point of view. Are there any other alternative investments you guys have seen emerge recently? I can touch on that a little bit. I think I had already mentioned that semi-transparent ETF structures, that's something we've seen from like an alternative structure side. But from an alternative investments, I think options and ETFs have become a really, whether it's the number of ETFs we're seeing come to market and the assets that they're gaining, those are becoming a really important part of kind of the investment community in that world. So that's something we've been keeping kind of tabs on from the trend side with Seamus and his team. And then I think something that's probably pretty popular amongst a lot of the retail traders is the crypto and digital asset space. So this kind of exposure comes in ETFs in a couple of different ways. There is ETFs that track you know, what they call digital asset companies who have exposure to mining or maybe a Coinbase as a digital assets exchange, providing that kind of stock exposure in the ETF to companies that have you know, that are in the digital asset space. So there's kind of that, which I think is interesting. And we saw a lot of those come to market earlier in the year as some of those firms IPO'd or some other kind of companies pivoted strategy towards that. And then there's the actual Bitcoin and digital asset or tokens types of funds. So in the US, we only have a Bitcoin futures uh, ETF accessible in terms of that structure of the alternative investment. But there's a lot of filings out with the SEC with a lot of issuers to kind of expand that universe. So I think that's something that we're keeping an eye on in terms of like, how does that kind of one, not only add a newer asset class or other ways of market access to the crypto world, but you know, what is that going to do for someone's portfolio? How else does that kind of evolve into a trading or investment or portfolio management strategy in the future for investors? So I think those are, are trends that we're seeing, which is, is really kind of looking at new asset classes and then new investment strategies that are kind of wrapped up in the ETF. It's interesting that you mentioned the futures-based Bitcoin ETF that's been approved. I've been following this and seeing how existing funds compare to Bitcoin. One that's out there is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is a closed-end fund. So if Bitcoin were to go up, say, 5%, the Grayscale fund might only go up 2 or 3%, or it might go up more than 5%. And the reason for that is that since it's a closed-in fund, it just trades freely on the open market and isn't necessarily linked to the Bitcoin price. I think that is worth understanding before retail investors get into these types of funds. I think that kind of hits on a couple interesting points. One is if there will be spot Bitcoin funds in the future, and, and that's really up to the regulatory framework that's applied at the end of the day. So you know, for an ETF business, we want to support firms that want to want to attempt to do that, and we continue to do so. And then I think it goes back to the educational side of knowing what kind of structure you're investing into, what is actually held in the ETF or the closed end fund, or maybe what options you're trading, things like that. So it goes back to like educating yourself and making sure you're kind of doing that diligent work on understanding what you're trading and what you have. So I think that's like pertinent to the investor these days. There are a lot of products out there. Just because it says it on the wrapper, maybe peek underneath and just make sure that everything is, is what you're kind of expecting from the holdings of what's in a fund or, or in some sort of investment product. Rotating back to the retail investors and the surge in retail demand we've had, have you seen that growth slow down with things going somewhat back to normal in some parts of the US? We have not seen it slow down, and I don't really see any signs that it will. Obviously, we hope it doesn't, but I think you have to look back on the multiple public events over the last two years that really shined on the markets. And some of them, obviously, you can't go without talking about sort of the meme events and some of the other market based events that happened in 2020 and 2019. But really, I think that. Even though maybe the event as a whole was negative, and not to get into specifics on any of these, but just as a whole, if we want to find one positive, it's that there was transparency, there was eyes and ears on all of our capital markets. And it just brought more attention to trading, to education, to accessibilities for the new younger investor, things like that, that we are happy came out of this. And just as an example, I mean, you look at the options market and volume as a whole over the last two years is up 100%, over 100%. There was some benefit to this. And what we've seen is that at first it was sort of erratic behavior. 
But now it's sort of grown into a natural and organic part of our ecosystem. And we hope to just continue as an industry to make sure that, like I said before, this isn't a trend that was just a quick surge. We definitely saw a peak of activity and, and it was definitely around some of the more tumultuous events in the market or kind of news we were reading during the, the pandemic that people were reacting to. And then we saw a lot of retail trading traders come in. On the ETF side, which I think is kind of funny. So we've had all these retail traders come in and trading a single stock or something and just getting used to it. And then as they're kind of a part of the market, we've obviously seen some of the activity come down to maybe not normal levels as pre- prior to the past two years, but kind of finding that middle ground or medium. And we've talked to people where they're telling us that they move their single stock exposure into an ETF because it's less to manage and less to worry about from a day-to-day perspective, whether it's volatility or, or what's going on in the market or a, a specific stock. So I think it's actually been a benefit for the ETF space to have these retail traders come in because of the broader market exposure that can provide, maybe when there isn't a lot of single stock volatility or major market news. All right. So it's going to continue to be exciting times in the markets, it sounds like. Are there any other noteworthy topics of discussion that you're seeing in the markets today? I think something that's interesting in our space is the Bitcoin ETFs that we talked about or crypto ETFs, obviously. I think the world is kind of watching that space and kind of how, whether that is a technology or in the ETF world or investment world, where that fits in kind of the profile of an investor's risk management appetite and, and all of that. We're also seeing legacy asset managers or larger mutual fund only companies come to the ETF market, um, which I think goes back to like what we talked about the benefits earlier in the podcast, which is really, are you serving your customer best? And a lot of that has to do with cost. And because ETFs are going to be generally cheaper than a mutual fund, we're seeing these large, large asset managers looking at converting those mutual funds to ETFs, which is, is I think, a very big moment and has happened already with a few of them, or even just launching new ETFs that either replicate or kind of look to do something similar to a successful strategy they have, or maybe launch something new that they don't have in their offering that an ETF can kind of provide to their customer base. So I think those are kind of interesting spaces. That's only going to add to the success of the ETF industry over the next 5, 10, 15 years from the assets that are going in, but also I think the amount of investors that are going to be aware of how to use ETFs, um, the benefits and all of that. And then I think lastly, just the educational aspect of things. So as we mentioned from NASDAQ, that's a huge focus of us, of our company and both Shamus and I's teams here. So I think that's always going to be something of a topic to make sure that that is a focus and a priority for the kind of financial participants to be educating the market on how things work, whether it's products or the technology around things or just the markets in general, kind of expecting those to be the kind of continuing noteworthy trends and topics that people are discussing over the next three, six to 12 months. You mentioned the movement of clients' funds from mutual funds to ETFs. And that reminds me of how we've seen this race to the bottom in terms of fees. Robinhood released free trading and all of the other brokers followed suit. And I was listening to a podcast this week where an investor mentioned that early on in his career, there were fees of something like $50 per trade, which is pretty crazy to think about. And when I got started with E-Trade, they had fees of $10 per trade. And it was so painful to see those fees on each trade. So it's nice that we've seen fees for both the brokerages and the ETFs just go so low and at sometimes be completely free. I think a lot of that can be contributed to just our growth in technology and the fact that a lot of what those fees contributed to are kind of cut out of that process, as well as there is such strong competition that, like you said, there was that race. And it's really exciting for the new investor because, like you said, a lot of people don't even know that periods like that existed where it was expensive to make a trade. And now you just have access to all of these free and easy to use trading platforms that you don't even really realize how great this is. And so it's just honestly a commodity for everyone to use going forward. Yeah. To the point of low cost, I I think there was actually an ETF at one point, which had a 0% expense ratio and may have actually had a negative expense ratio, meaning they were paying you back for holding their fund. So I need to double check those facts, but I think it just kind of 
the fact that we're that low in cost, whether it's retail brokerage trading fees, expense ratios on funds, I think shows how far that technology has gotten, um, but just how efficient the markets are and why it's such a great time to be an investor in these markets. It's never been easier to educate yourself, to trade, to, to hold a fund and things like that. I think we also need to make sure we appreciate those facts and continue to improve the other places maybe where costs are high. And I wouldn't be surprised that one of the biggest barriers for people to get into options is the fees. If you're buying an option that costs you, say, 200 bucks, and your fee is $10, that right there is 5% of your capital, and it might not make it worth the trade. 100%. I think that's part of why options were kind of the last domino to fall when it came to free trading, just because it was sort of that late push. All right. Seamus and Carlos, thanks so much for coming onto the show. I really enjoyed this conversation and really appreciate you joining us and spending time on here for our audience. Where can the audience go to connect with the NASDAQ and you guys and learn more about the work you are doing? We've been pushing to increase education. And part of that is building out internal websites. So we built a tool similar to what I had mentioned before. It's a backtesting tool that allows investors to go in and test out certain strategies, certain products during whether it be market movement periods or just any period that you choose. So definitely go check that out. It's at nasdaq.com slash XND. And if I could give any advice, it would be just sign up for all information you can receive, whether that be newsletters, social media accounts, et cetera. Carlos and I are constantly talking about things that we see within media and it helps us to become more educated. So just continue to do that. For my end, obviously our business serves more from the institutional purpose and, and the kind of asset managers. But I think I'd recommend to the audience to go on those websites, whether it's a Vanguard or a BlackRock or State Street or even the smaller issuers and and read about their funds, read about some of the educational content they're putting out there about investing and the benefits of ETFs in your portfolio. I think that's massive. And it's an exciting time, as I mentioned, to be an investor. So Clay, we really appreciate you having us on. This has been really fun and uh, hopefully we can do it again. Agreed. Thank you, Clay. Fantastic. We'll be sure to link some of those in the show notes. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.